There's going to be something good in here. There's there's crap every time. Every time we send recordings, Adam has to wade through a mound of crap. It's true. <laughs> Part of my job. But he's incredible at it. Like he just puts on his hip waders and wades right in there and Adam, makes it the sound incredible good. crap waiter. Yes. Good job. This is not okay for podcast publication. Hey, welcome to Midnight Theology, a podcast where we talk all things Christianity, leadership, culture, and life as they relate to the Wesleyan Methodist movement. I'm your host for today, Sarah Wank, and I'm joined by Gabe Wank. Hey, guys. Larry Frank. What's up? And the incredible crap waiter, Adam Penn. Hello. <laughs> well, there's that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, today we are, I think, kind of excited about uh, a topic that has uh, been highly tweeted about in the last several months, maybe years, that is both a new and old concept to church life and Christianity, that big word called deconstruction. Uh, Today, we might do a little uh, compare-contrast between deconstruction and maybe a little demolition that's happening um, in the Christian evangelical movement, especially. So if that's a new word to you, if you're like, deconstruction, what is that? Um, It is a, I'd say, fairly new movement in uh, American Christian evangelical culture uh, to process one's faith. Um, If I had to define it a little more, I would say it's the process of questioning aspects of one's faith as a result of uh, lived experiences that maybe doesn't coincide with one's current belief system. Essentially, where you begin to question and process the experiences you've had with faith to the faith you want to have. Um, And some of us would say that the current trend towards deconstruction has some benefits and um, some deficiencies, maybe, as some deconstruction has turned a little more demolition than deconstruction. And that is uh, renouncing a person's faith, tearing it all apart as being problematic, and sometimes not rebuilding a faith that fits with their belief system. So some deconstruct faith by um, taking it apart, taking a closer look, and others just sort of tear it to the ground. And that's maybe a little bit of what we'll get to today, that season um, or seasons of life uh, where we personally process our faith, uh, what we want to believe versus what we've been told, and where some of those tensions lie. Uh, We may also use another word in the process uh, of our podcast today that we'll call reconstruction, and that is the deliberate choice to lean into God's word um, as authoritative truth instead of ourselves and our faith in Jesus instead of the church as an institution. Um, And so some healthy reconstruction happens when we remove our faith from um, the policies of an institution um, or the politics of it, and we build it instead around the person of Jesus and uh, God's word. Now, we should probably pause to say that for us, reconstruction 
can only happen in community where you can process and question and share honestly. Uh, We would not support a solo endeavor of demolishing your faith in hopes of rebuilding it, because I think I can speak for the four of us when I say that faith has to happen in community. It cannot happen in isolation. And some really dangerous things happen when we do, uh, especially when we tear apart and tear down our faith without the safety net of other disciples in healthy places who can help us rebuild it. So with all of those um, kind of definitions laid out, I'm sure we've all had our own moments of deconstruction or chapters of it. Um, So why don't you guys share a little bit about what your own process of deconstruction looked like for you, or maybe your comfort level with the current uh, trend toward deconstruction. Where are you guys at? I think the first thing that all of us would agree on this, if if you're someone who is in this process of deconstruction, we love you. Like we're not mm-hmm. going to, we're not throwing stones um, at this right now. Like our, our concern is like the demolition uh, piece of it. We all have these moments of, of doubt, of questioning, of wrestling. Um, and I kind of think like at its purest, deconstruction is like just kind of like moving beyond Sunday school faith and figuring out the why behind what you were told and things like that. So yeah. I, I, I think my, my first experience with anything like that was in seminary. Um, and it was some people that had a very negative reaction um, to, to anything like that. So it was actually my very first class in seminary. Um, three out of the four of us went to Asbury seminary. This is an Orthodox seminary. So they're not, they're not touting anything out there. That's, uh, that's weird. Um, so to speak, as far as the mainstream of the Christian faith. Uh, but we wrote a book by N.T. Wright in the very first class I had kingdom church and world, um, <laughs> with, uh, Chuck Gutenson. And yeah. in, the, in this book by N.T. Wright, he asserts, and a lot of people probably would not know this about N.T. Wright, that Jesus prior to the resurrection was not aware of his own divinity so that Jesus went through his ministry, went through his life, believing himself to be simply a human being with the extraordinary vocational call of being Israel's Messiah. Oh my gosh. We should do a whole episode just on that. I was, yeah, I was going to (laughs) say we could do a whole episode just on that thought, (laughs) you know, and, but it's one of those things like he, he was not questioning the divinity of Jesus because N.T. Wright would say clearly post-resurrection, he's fully aware of his divinity. Like, boom. And everything he said was 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 backed up in a very scholarly way. Uh, it was backed up by scripture, deep dives into scripture. And there was um, a person in that class with me who withdrew from the seminary <laughs> over wow. this book because it was blasphemous. Uh, and I remember thinking, and, and I, Chuck said to us, um, we're trying to move you beyond a Sunday school faith. Hmm. And I remember thinking, it's good to question and, and dig deeper into a lot of this stuff. So that, that says nothing about you know some of the really bad things that have happened in the church, namely in the evangelical church that's causing uh, the deconstructionist movement uh, right now. Um, all that to say, I think it's healthy. Um, to kind of to kind of tear down and see what's left, which is much different than than demolition, which is just we're going to leave a wasteland behind us um, and walk away from the whole thing. Deconstruction is is done in community with the purpose of seeing what's really true and rebuilding on that foundation. 
Mm-hmm. So that that was my first experience. I think you named a really important tension or, or maybe misunderstanding around the deconstruction movement is uh, there, there's a process of deconstructing and reconstructing your faith. And then there's a process of deconstructing and hopefully reconstructing uh, your commitment to the institution of the church. And, mm. and much of the deconstructionist movement that's happening right now may lean more towards the institutional issues than the issues of theology and faith. Um, but I'm with you, Larry. My um, I'll be brief because my experience with deconstruction was also at the beginning of seminary. Um, I, of course, was raised in a Christian home, as you know, um, had an incredible experience with faith early on. And seminary for me was like, um, oh my gosh, this is going to sound like a really tre- cheesy illustration, but I think it defines it well. It would be like... <laughs> There were so many aha moments, so many moments where the lights went on for me that the like the the explosion of that pushed some bricks and windows out of my house. Um, but it was all good stuff. They were good realizations where, mm. where I took the Sunday school faith and expanded on it in such a way that it cracked the walls, right? And I, I had to do some repairs of those walls. It, it was not a tearing down because it was bad or negative. It was like an expansion, like I needed, like I needed to add on to the house, right? Um, it, the way it pushed my faith to just kind of explode in those first couple of semesters. And all you have to do is take a class with Dr. Steve Steve Siemens called Systematic Theology and your understanding of the things of God. It's it's like an enlightenment, right, is what it was for me that kind of put those cracks in the walls um, that I needed to then piece together. And seminary was a very safe place to put those pieces back together um, Mm. where it caused cracks. But I, I, I want to show my own bias that my deconstruction wasn't out of harm, right? Where I had to pull bad things out and then fill holes. My deconstruction was a sort of expansion that pushed me. Um, uh, And it was uncomfortable. It was very challenging. It it made my head spin at times, but it was like like an onslaught of eye-opening aha moments that enlightened my faith. Um, and so I'm really, I'm really thankful that I didn't have, I didn't have hard stuff to tear down. Yeah. So, uh, Sarah mentioned the analogy of a house and, uh, my analogy that I'm going to use for, for my process of deconstruction is that of a car. Um, because as the only non Asbarian on this podcast, uh, I went to, we love uh, you anyway. We love you. Anyway. I, I know, I know. And uh, why am I not surprised that you're using a car analogy? I, I well, it, I, yes. If you know me, yes. you should know that my little gearhead heart, uh, always reverse <laughs> the cars. I, I'm wearing my, my Ford Ford baseball cap. Um, for those of you who can't see, uh, since you're listening to this, but anyway, uh, so I, it, it, yeah, I went to University of Dubuque Theological Seminary, and I I don't really think that it, this had much to do with the seminary, just as my own experience. Seminary for me was more or less like removing the engine from a car, like popping a hood of a car I had never even looked under the hood of, of removing the engine, taking it apart piece by piece, inspecting every piece to see what it did, but then... 
I had an engine that was disassembled in front of me, and I had to figure out how to put it back together. Um, Dude, that's cool. And yeah, so like, I, I that whole process did not take place until after I graduated. Hmm. So I I didn't get the thing put back together while I was still in seminary. I was still in the process of like examining it and trying to understand how it functioned and. You know, then I, I graduate seminary and I got an engine in pieces, and then I got to go pastor my first church. <laughs> yeah. yeah <laughs> so you can imagine, <laughs> like, not only was I, you know, uh, learning how to be a pastor, then we had our first baby. So I was learning how to be a father. And meanwhile, trying to put back together this this faith that I had, uh, you know, uh, deconstructed and trying to reconstruct that in a in a healthy way. Um, it was a lot. Um, so while the work of deconstruction for me was like this personal thing for my faith, sometimes that work um, can can happen because of a life experience too, right? It's not just like, oh, I go to seminary, right? Because not everybody goes to seminary. You know, we're, yeah. the four of us are pastors, right? But a lot of people listening to this podcast probably have never been to seminary, but but you've probably had a life experience, that calls your existing belief system into question. And then you have to wrestle with what you've lived, the reality of what you lived as to, you know, how that relates to what you thought you believed. Yes. And you've got some reconstructing to do. Right. That, that's an interesting point, Adam. So let, let's just, let's trail on that for a minute. Like what, what's caused the proliferation of this then? Like, mm. like, I mean, it, this is a huge movement right now. Like, you scroll through TikTok or whatever. I mean, hashtag deconstruction, exvangelical. I mean, it's it, it's all there. So, what are the cultural, the shared cultural moments that that are leading to these these deconstructionist um, places? I mean, I've got answers, but I I, I want to hear what you guys say. I, yeah, I've got a couple of I've got a couple of theories. You know, I, I think the the first that is maybe more universal across generations is quite simply leaving your parents' home, right? As sure. you, like, figure out what you're going to do with your life and what kind of relationships you want to have, then you're also sort of forced to say, well, mom and dad aren't making me go to church on Sunday morning. Am I going to continue that tradition for myself, right? And and will I associate with a church? And what do I want church to look like? And so it, it can kind of spiral out into... Um, just quite simply, the young adult faith formation of I'm not under my parents' roof anymore, and I get to set the rules for myself. And I think that is a universal trigger. Let's be really clear, though there is a surge in this, I think, due to exvangelicalism, um, maybe rightly so, <laughs> uh, big maybe, um, mm-hmm. it is not universal to people, meaning every generation has rewritten the rules of religion um, once they left their parents' house. Otherwise, we wouldn't have had things like the Jesus movement or um, what was contemporary Christian music at the time out of that Jesus movement, like guitars in church. I mean, part of that was a reconstruction for folks of what church is supposed to be. So this is not a brand new thing. There is some newness around um, the current evangelical movement my theory on that is the, um, how do we nicely say, the the fall of the great church, right? Which is uh, prominent leaders and in positions of abuse and 
more vocalization around those abuses. And I don't just, I mean, of course, physical and sexual abuses, also theological abuses. Abuse there's power. Now abuse of power, abuse of theology. And there's now a platform that is social media where you can very easily point those things out. Um, and has, we just didn't give voice to those things 30 years ago. It, it still happened, but you didn't, you didn't identify them publicly, you know. But I want to know your theories, Larry. Ooh. I mean, I think you're you're on it with the fall of the the great church. Like, I I think just the utter marriage between the religious right and um and politics um in in an nationalism on an idolatrous level mm. uh, has pushed yes. a lot of people to sit back and say, "What am I doing with this? And why does this not feel like Jesus?" Well, it, but I think there are a lot of folks who have gone even a step further than that, you know, to say, well, if this is what Christianity is, if this is what church is, I want nothing to do with right. it. Yeah. Yeah. The great hypocrisy of uh, Christianity smashed up with with nationalism and progressivism and agendas um, combined with the abuses of power in those often same overlapping circles. You have a, a whole bunch of people who are saying, I was either caught up in those cycles of abuses or powers. And and let's be clear, all of us here um, have experienced it, experienced deep harm and abuse within the church. Mm-hmm. So we understand, right, the pushback of, I don't want to be part of that. Um, but yeah, you add the current cultural trends of agendas and politics from every angle and a whole bunch of people going, that isn't the gospel, that isn't the church. And in that regard, they're right, right? I I think the frustration for me around deconstruction is there doesn't seem to be a separation of deconstructing the institution and deconstructing the faith. And so I feel like people are throwing the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak, Um, And saying, well, the church is a disaster, and so I'm going to give up on Jesus or give up on faith. And that's very disconcerting to me. Uh, Gabe, I know you've had um, some kind of questions, right, around the whole deconstruction thing. Where is your head around it? Yeah, you know, being the the token old man of the group, uh, (laughs) I hear these words, uh, deconstruction and demolition, and I think, okay, deconstruction, uh, what are we eating and how are we making it? You know, we're going to deconstruct, a lot of times we watch these food shows that that are your favorites, but I enjoy the product of those food shows, and, you know, they're always (laughs) deconstructing a type of food and then turning it into something else. When you were like, food, I was like, I'm with you now. Yeah, we're having a deconstructed salad. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, yeah, we're going to deconstruct see? lasagna, and instead you'll have a meatball and a noodle and a tomato. Yeah, and, that's and I know a that's 10 years ago, okay, and that was very popular it. 10 but years is ago. Any, but is like, anyone at all surprised that Gabe took this to food? Anyone? <laughs> no. Anyone? No? Okay. <laughs> I took it to cars, Gabe took it to food. We're, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, and, and so the, just the terminology alone is like, okay, so let me catch up here, right? Um but I'm with you. I think I just had different terms uh, as I was coming up through. I think for me, even before I got to seminary, I was 
experiencing what you've described as a deconstruction uh, and maybe an attempt of others uh, to demolish my faith. Uh, just growing up in a Christian home, going to a Christian college for me, uh, I went to Houghton College in, uh, in 1994. Uh, there's, I'm dating myself. It was a Wesleyan school. Uh, I thought it was a very, you know, just uh, there would be Methodists and Wesleyan, and, you know, Wesleyan Church uh, became itself and broke off from the Methodists. They split in the 1840s just over the issue of slavery. Uh, and so they're very conservative, the, the Wesleyan Church. And so as I get there, I find that I'm being challenged uh, by others of a Calvinistic view uh, in where their traditions are. A lot of the students weren't Wesleyans or Methodists. Uh, and for me, growing up in a Christian home, both my mother and my father are pastors. And so I'm being faced with a deconstruction of my faith and a, and a direct challenge that my mother's existence and ministry is non-biblical. Mm. And I had to figure out how to deal with that, but not by calling mom and saying, what's up with this, but by diving into the scriptures, talking with professors, uh, reading copious amounts of articles and, and information and, and trying to and debating with others in love, but debating like, brother, sister, I don't get where you're coming from. This is just, just doesn't resonate with me. And so I really uh, had a, a struggle with that um, in, in mid nineties, uh, coming to the understanding of, you know, God has a bigger plan than only electing uh, small groups or even one side or one part of the race of humanity uh, into his calling and then the work that he wants to do on this earth of redemption. And so by the time I got... To, go ahead, Sarah. Uh, I was going to say for everybody, the deconstructing of faith is deeply personal, but yeah, in a clergy couple's household, deconstructing your faith also potentially meant a deconstructing your family, like the identity of your yeah, of your that family. Was rough. Yeah, yeah. There was a, I mean, just to to kind of lay it out at a personal level, there was a, a couple semesters that I just kind of said, all right. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm processing this, mom and dad. I am working through this, you know, and they would give me some tidbits, and, but I didn't want all my information to come from them. I had to get information um, from other sources, original sources, uh, for, you know, secondary sources other than just that, that family unit and, and own it one way or the other. Uh, and is this biblical? Is this not biblical? How, how do we understand the evolution of the church and theologies and the practice thereof? You know, and when you were talking, Adam, just about the engine and, and, you know, in seminary you had it, you know, this, you've learned the systematic and the systems of theology, but it wasn't until after with all the other things of life that you started putting it into practice and the practical theology and practical theology goes head to head with systematic theology when you become active in ministry, either as a pastor or just as, as a follower of Christ in your daily life, and you're trying to res, wrestle with the, the dissonance between what you've been taught and, and, and the character and the nature of who God is. Yeah, and your uh, lived and, experience. Yeah. 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 So I think, Gabe, you, 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 you just named um, an ideal process of, of deconstruction. Like you, you went through it, you, you challenged yourself, you, you sought truth and then reconstructed on it. Right. Um, 
and I think that's just that part of where I'm like fearful in the current deconstruction uh, movement is that so much of it is demolition. Adam, you alluded to it saying like, if this is what church is like, I don't want to be a part of it. So they're just walking away from church, walking away from Jesus um, mm-hmm. in so many ways. And um, like, we all have those doubts and those wrestles and things that we have to, we have to have to go through. Um, and, but I just, I can't imagine. And it's easy for me to say this because I haven't had to do it. I can't imagine saying that's it. I'm done with the church. Like I, I've, I've spent my career trying to make the church better. I mean, Wesley said the church always stands in need of reform. Um, so it's not perfect. There's a quote attributed to Augustine. Augustine absolutely did not say it. Um, the church is a whore, but she's the only mother I've got. I mean, so I, I, I've got this. I'm okay. I've never with heard the, that quote. Yeah, it's it's not Augustine. <laughs> uh, Careful, Gabe, now. Careful. Gabe's Gabe's brain just fell out a little bit. I think. But I mean, but so, it's it's true. There are, there are those moments that we've we've all been so harmed um, by the church. But I've also seen the church at her best. There are, there are, there there are moments that I sit back and go, "What did I sign up for? This is not what I signed up for." But then there are moments I go, "This is church." This, this is of God. This is not of God. And deconstruction is the wading through all of that. I'm just fearful about leaving the wasteland behind and, and, and walking away from it as, as a cultural trend of, yes. of deconstructing and not trying to come back, you know, not trying mm-hmm. to reform, not trying to, 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 to bring about a more biblical uh, church in community, but just saying, eh, I'm out. We're going to burn the house down and bury the ashes. Yeah. Yeah, and I th- I think that the um, you know there are extremes in every trend, right? E- or every opinion, every um, agenda, right? There are extremes to that, and it's easy on social media, especially, to see these extremes of like um, burn it down, right? I I don't care. The church has harmed me. It's hypocritical. I don't want anything to do with it. I'm tearing it apart and and walking away from the ashes. You know, that's probably not the case for the majority of folks um, because it's a deeply personal and complex experience, your faith development. And uh, I'm with you, Larry. I think the fear uh, and why I would hesitate to use a word like deconstruction is the uh, assumption that I'm sort of tearing it apart and walking away. Um, when my hope would be is that people, like Adam said, sort of inspect their faith uh, in the in the hopes of healing uh, traumas they've experienced and abuses they've experienced, and leaning into God for that healing with Christian community. Um, mm-hmm. I think some would say that their deconstruction is for healing, right? Um, and, and in order to do so, they must move away from from that Christian community. And that's where I think we all struggle because we're part of this Wesleyan Methodist movement that believes that you cannot do Christianity alone. You need mm-hmm. both the accountability and support and also the encouragement of folks to hold you up when you're not whole, right, to help you get to the place of wholeness again. And so, you know, I think what we all hope is you can certainly have doubt in your faith. You can certainly uh, move the pieces around, make sense of them, discard things that are not helpful uh, or 
accurate, right, to the things of faith, um, but do so with a hopeful sort of optimism that Christ can rebuild something in you with the church in community that is better than it was. Uh, let's take a quick historical look at this so that we're not just um, spouting our own thoughts and agendas. I mean, this isn't, we said this is a, a new old concept. It goes way back, and for our sake as Wesleyans, let's take a look at our founding father, John Wesley, and um, his crisis of faith that really unfolded in his time in America um, as direct evidence that there are seasons of deconstruction uh, for all of us. So uh, long story short, right, uh, Wesley is... um, Uh, jumps on a ship, heads to America to be a missionary, to save lost souls, and uh, uh, to nurture the Christian community that was settling in America. Uh, Some of us have had the unique privilege of heading to the spot in Georgia where he and Charles landed and provided early ministry. Let's just say it did not go well for them. Utter (laughs) failure. Like, if if you're ever discouraged about your life and faith, just... Do a, a quick glance at John Wesley's time in America. And, Char- and Charles, too. <laughs> and I mean, Charles. Yeah, he was a disaster. At, at Fort Frederica, Charles was kicked out of his his home, <laughs> the parsonage, and denied laundry privileges. <laughs> like, this is the it church to, like, at its worst. This is Christians tree. behaving bad. Thou stinketh. <laughs> yeah, uh, pastors, he got in trouble for not baptizing an infant, right? In the dead of winter, because he didn't he didn't want the baby to get sick. And they kicked him out of the parsonage, and he had to sleep under a tree. Yeah, and there was also a woman that accused him of putting the moves on her. But it turns out she was putting the moves on everybody. <laughs> so uh, pastors don't don't feel bad. Uh, so anyway, John and Charles have this uh, epic failure in the Americas. Um, John, in particular, uh, heads home. Right, turns tail, heads back, and has a near death experience on his trip back to England. Um, and panics. I, he's in full like fear of his life. His faith is falling apart. His life is falling apart. And in the middle of that, he encounters a group of Christians called the Moravians who had um, a, a tangible peace and presence in the midst of this near-death experience. They so rubbed off on him that it helped lead ultimately to his personal awakening, awakening at Aldersgate. Um, as he sort of redirected his life according to the example that he saw in them. But John Wesley was was so doubtful, right, of his own faith in those moments around his failure that he was not sure that he was a Christian. Um, so talk about deconstructing your faith. I mean, at this point, he's in ministry, right? He's a he priest, is yes. He's ordained. He, is, a, he mm-hmm. is an ordained priest. We're talking... Um, he's already done things of like the Holy Club, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And some enlightening work at Oxford to deepen his own personal faith and hopefully reestablish an awakening in the institution. And yet in the middle of that, right, he's tearing apart his own doubts and his own uncertainties about his salvation and his call. Um, Yeah, any other thoughts about Wesley and how that may or may not have been a season of uh, deconstruction for him. I mean, I think it definitely was like deconstruction in sense. I mean, he had all this fervor to go to the Americas and 
do this work and um him and his brother both failed at it they they end up switching posts um uh and then um charles leaves john goes back um adam put it in the the notes here that uh wesley's uh, remembrance or his question rather of uh, his whole experience in Georgia. I went to America to convert the Indians, but oh, who shall convert me? I, it's just this: what am I doing here? Mm-hmm. Why am I? Why am I part of this? Yeah, and it's worth noting that this was not John's only experience of deconstruction in his life. Yeah, you know he he had this season of testing and redefinition before his famous heartwarming experience at Aldersgate. And we kind of mark that as a turning point in John's life and ministry. But then, even after Aldersgate, uh, we have journal entries where he is really struggling in his faith uh, and and with his assurance of salvation uh, and just that experiential aspect of, of his faith that's bumping up against what he knows to be true. He just doesn't feel it, Right. Um, even as late as towards uh, the the end of his life, uh, he wrote a letter to Charles in June of 1766, uh, where he he basically was in such a dark place that he said this. He said, in one of my last letters, I was saying that I do not feel the wrath of God abiding on me, nor can I believe it does. And yet, this is the mystery. I do not love God. I never did. Therefore, I never believed in the Christian sense of the word. I mean, he's like, he's like, you know, this is John Wesley towards the end of his life. He's like scorched earth, scorched yeah. earth. It's all done. It's over. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and so just noting that like deconstruction is not just a one-time event that mm. you question your faith, you have an experience, you put something back together and you say, well, I'm all set to go for the rest of my life. There's going to be various seasons, points of transition, experiences you go through that are going to cause that continual work of deconstruction and reconstruction. The important thing is, Am I, am I going to lean out in those seasons or am I going to lean in? And by that, I mean, am I going to lean out and, and as we've said, throw the baby out with the bathwater and say, you know what, this all must be for naught. It, it would just be easier if I just call it quits. Or am I going to lean into not only God's word, but into Christian community um, and especially for folks who, you know, I, I've, I've heard a lot of talk around, well, because of the hurt I've experienced in the church, you know, I'm just going to take a break from church altogether until I can find Jesus again, right? And it's just like that solo quest, like we said, right? You know, that, that, that heroic solo quest to find Jesus on my own, it's not going to work. No, and maybe you truly do need to step away from the from the community of people who have caused harm. Yes, but but don't not go out on all your together. own. Find a different no. community. Yes. Yeah, I, I think Adam's onto it. it. Step away from that church. I mean, and hear us clearly, those of you who are listening, that if there are places of abuse in the church that have done harm to you. Do not continue to experience harm and victimization by saying, well, I have to stay part of this community. No, find a healthy Christian community so that you might heal and reconstruct 
your faith in the appropriate time. Uh, you know, don't yes. continue relationships with um, unhealthy, abusive systems of church institution uh, or people, you know. Um, mm-hmm. But don't then go, well, I have to step away altogether because the church has done too much harm. There are healthy places of church. Um, and and are they imperfect? Absolutely, because they're filled with imperfect people, but we're on a journey together, right, to be more like Jesus. And so there has to be some uh, some sense of grace and understanding and moving together, right, towards what, what God intends us to be. And I think there's an essential piece to this that I, <laughs> I sort of struggle to name because I think it's dangerous territory in the world we live in right now. But um, uh, let's say this. So Wesley, in some of his struggles, was um, it says in some of his journals that he was looking some, for some advice on whether he should keep preaching um, as he dealt with some of his doubts about God. And his Moravian friend, advisor, Peter Bowler, said, keep preaching, right? Um, and essentially told him, the more you preach it, the more you believe it, right? And uh, so the more you practice what you, the more you preach and the more you practice that, um, the more it will restore your faith. He essentially told him to fake it till you make it, right? <laughs> um, and I think that in reconstruction, deconstruction and reconstruction, for me, there are some essential truths that are the footers, right, of deconstruction and reconstruction that are fairly unmovable. Um, And I think part of what makes me nervous about this this whole deconstruction thing and the world we're living in is there are some who would say, well, truth is relative, right? Christian truth is relative. And so I have sort of the power to deconstruct and reconstruct according to my um, ideologies and beliefs. Or even feelings, Yes, and and experiences. However, there are some things about Christianity that are unmovable. Otherwise, they're unchristian, right? So at some point, I might have to investigate why I believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world and the Son of God. But it it is an essential pillar, right, of the Christian faith to say Jesus is the Savior of the world, the Son of God. Otherwise... I mean, Jesus is the thing that makes us Christian, mm-hmm. right? So so there are some things that as I reconstruct my faith that I'm building on, right? Um, and, I, and so if you're listening and you happen to be in a place of healing or reconstruction, I would say that there are some truths that you should cling to that become the decking, the, the footers or the pillars that will hold the weight of everything else. And and you might have to... to fake it till you make it with some of those beliefs, right? But if you start with the foundation of God's word as authority and source of truth and the knowledge of the things of God, um, if you add to that, you know, Jesus is uh, the means by which the world is reconciled to God by belief in him um, and the things of like the power that the Holy Spirit gives us power to know and understand more of God, I can take those things and reconstruct um, a Christian faith, right? Yeah. Um, but I can't I can't deconstruct and throw those things out too as if they are untrue, right? Otherwise, 
that's the demolition you're talking about. I'm tearing apart my Christian faith and not leaving any Christian element behind. Yeah, and and then you've got nothing to work with, and you're you're done. I mean, at that point, there there's no hope of reconstruction, and so it really that that work of reconstruction starts with that deliberate choice, you know, to say. I am going to choose to root my sense of of truth and self in something outside of myself. Yeah. Na- namely the word of God. Uh, and and start from there to say yeah. I'm, you know, I'm not going to yes, this has been my experience, these are my feelings, but I'm going to temper those with the the external truths I find in the word of God that that tell me what to do with those experiences and feelings. Who say that? Yeah, and to be really clear, you should t- look at the you know the pillar that is, say, the Word of God. L- like you said, you should crack open the hood, take a look yeah. at it, poke at it, right, and say, why do I believe this to be true, right? What evidence is there that this is true? What about this has been told to me that is untrue about God's Word, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but with the assumption that there is a pillar there, right? Um, mm-hmm. That you need to salvage, you need to save in order to be to reconstruct. So I'm not saying blindly accept some pillars of truth in Christianity and build on those, because if you don't understand why they're holding up your faith, they, you know, then you'll always risk losing it. It's kind of like, I mean, l- listen to me talk like I know about construction. I, I know enough, but like you know I can how to tell deconstruct Gabe, things really well. <laughs> I can tell Gabe that I want to like take out a wall in the house to open it up, but I know that if that's a weight-bearing wall, I can't do it. The whole house will come down. So, you know, faith in or or an understanding of scripture, that's a weight-bearing wall, right? Like understand why it's there, why it holds everything up, you know, what you believe about it. Um, but there are just some pillars I don't think we can lose without total demolition, right? Mm-hmm. I think just to kind of round out that a little bit, too, going back to Adam reading a piece from that letter in 1766 from John to Charles, the way it ends, or at least the segment that ends, is his goal, John's goal, even though he was having a lot of self-doubt, he didn't doubt his message about faith or love or justification or perfection. He was increasing in his zeal, even though he seemed to be struggling personally. Uh, But his goal was he wants the world to know, to come to know what he didn't know. He had a passion for others to know that which he seemed or felt like he couldn't quite touch kind of like being able to see God and, and, and he didn't see God in, in, in direct face to face, but like in the passing of the cloud, right? Looking at scripture, going back from Wesley and back to a, the original source, we see time and time again of, of the construction, deconstruction, sometimes utter demolition uh, of faith of the people of Israel, the people that God called to create, uh, the nation that would save all other nations, and from that nation, uh, and from that one tribe of the 12 tribes, uh, Jesus would come from. Uh, But over and over and over, account on paper telling us how men and women struggled and wrestled with God. The name Israel itself means to wrestle with God. Jacob being renamed and being that 
character uh, of someone who God seemed to love, even though he was lying, cheating, stealing his way to the top. And just over and over, God's redemptive work uh, in humanity, and all along the way, humanity trying to figure it out and trying to work within the constructs that they had at the time, and God continuing to help us come more face-to-face with him over time. And here we are 2,000 years past the son's birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension, and we are still trying to attain more knowledge, more wisdom, uh, the discernment uh, for God's purposes of our lives, even while we see the world around us continue to yearn and kind of burn itself down and as if there just can't be that kind of love. There just can't be an entity, a being, a person that loves me that much. Yeah, maybe there's a sense of uh, it's hard to understand, so it must not be possible, uh, you know, sort of element to our deconstruction that um, we're kind of the kind of people we want answers and explanations for everything. And when we don't have them, then it must not be true. And there's, an, of course, an element to our, our knowledge of the love of God that requires us to believe it and s- despite our lack of understanding. And maybe, Gabe, I think you've named one of the great failures of the church that's maybe led to some of this deconstruction. Um, is I think in my experience growing up, we weren't given a lot of permission to wrestle with God. Um, so... <laughs> Nobody told me it was wrong in my tradition, but nobody told me it was okay either. Like that God could handle my questions and God could um, handle my doubt, right? And that he would be patiently with me as I processed it and put it back together. Uh, that he could handle, I think, quite on, oh, I, go, go, I think go. some of this, you know, I think some of this is honest to goodness, displaced grief and anger towards God. Um, Mm. and so instead of like being angry and sharing that with God about the hurts and traumas of life, um, it's easier to take our faith apart and step aside from the church than to tell God we're mad at him. Right. Mm. Um, I'm not saying that's everything to deconstruction. Um, but there's certainly been a permission giving in my adult years to say, God can handle me saying, um, why did you do that? This seems inconsistent with who you are, right? Uh, Let's take Bristol alone, that it's okay Mm. for me to say, uh, Scripture says you give and you take away, and it feels like you gave and then you took her away. Now, my theology will later tell me that that's not the whole story, but, but I have enough of a relationship with God to be able to process that grief and that anger with him. And quite honestly, if I'm not given a, a place to question God and uh, deal with my grief that I feel like he's directly involved with, then it's easier to tear apart my faith and, and take it down than to question God. And, and so, uh, personally, as pastor, I feel like there's been a lot of enlightenment in some of my conversations with folks to say, God can handle your anger, right? Like, mm. he can handle the question. He can handle your process. And like a child um, breaking down in front of a parent, right, that that the parent can withstand that, right, as 
as you fall apart. And I wonder if there's just something to the deconstruction movement that is just us not handling our wrestling with God, right? Um, and so we take it on ourselves and we dismantle the faith itself instead. Or we, or instead of processing those things with God as God wants to do with us, we turn it on God, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, in fact, we were at a... Um, I hear, we hear this one a lot as pastors, but it was like, if God, um, if God made a perfect world, right, and made us as perfect people, why did he, like, allow us to mess up? And we can do a whole Midnight Theology episode on that, right, on the fall. Uh, but I find it really fascinating. And all sorts of new ideas. Yeah. I find it really fascinating that we, we, we put the onus on God, right? Why did God allow it instead of why did we do it, <laughs> right? Why yeah. did we not, right? So we do that with everything. Why did God cause these things to happen when things go wrong? And and maybe it's been our ineffective processing of those things that have made us want to tear apart the faith and institution itself. Mm-hmm. Well, all of that to say, um. <laughs> deconstruction is a just a reality right i i i think that um christians are having some negative response to that uh, word and to the process and maybe we shouldn't be so triggered by it because it's something we've all done ourselves uh even in the gospel of mark uh the father of the demon possessed boy right as his as he's seeking you know healing and experiences jesus uh says Lord, help my unbelief, right? Um, so I think maybe a us Christians should relax a little bit <laughs> that the word deconstruction has triggered us when it's really just um, processing of personal faith that's happened across generations. But before we move to the next segment, I guess I want to speak for a second to those who might be in the process of deconstructing what advice do you have for them um, or any tips or tricks or insights to those who might need to deconstruct but want to do it without demolition? I, I think we've said it several – yeah, we've said it several ways. Community, <laughs> community, community, community. Like yeah. in those moments that I have been at my points of biggest doubt and wanting to throw my hands up and walk away. It has been the communities that I surround myself with you guys included that, that pull me back in and give me grounding and centering and also give me the space to, to process those things in, in, in non-judgmental ways. I mean, we all have dark nights of the soul. We all have moments of questioning and, and doubt and it's, it's got to be done in community. If you try to do this all on your own, it's going to turn into demolition um, really quick. And before I toss it over, I think an important word um, is also for people who have someone in their life who is deconstructing. Uh, I'm I've somebody I'm connected to right now whose adult child is in the process of deconstructing is just be patient and yeah, show an yeah. immense amount of grace and love um, and, and, and because I, I think what hurts um, is when it's, no, you can't do this. You have to think this. Like, let it play out, and and it's going to be love and grace that, that is, is – and your love and grace demonstrated that allows that to be the foundation that's left over at the, at the, at the bottom of the heap of deconstruction. 
Yeah, the the ministry of presence and listening and how we just said that, you know, God has the ability to sit there and listen. You know, you can you can be God's presence to someone just by sitting there and listening and being present with them and being able to take whatever it is they have to say instead of feeling like you have to snap back. Yeah, Christian caveat for all of you connected to the church, loving Jesus, pursuing him past deconstruction, please avoid the tendency to answer the questions and especially avoid the tendency to to throw helpful Bible verses at those who are deconstructing. Uh, in my experience, that just um, is perceived as impatience um, with the process uh, when really they just need folks who are not going to abandon them in their deconstruction. So so get really comfortable with the questions, and it is totally okay when they say, well, if God made a perfect world, why would he allow us to sin? Then he must not be so perfect. Allow them to sit in that question without you having the answer for them, because if they're going to reconstruct their faith, they need to reconstruct it, right? With some support and guidance, but you're not throwing sheetrock on the wall, right? Like, let let them do it. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Ask, ask the right questions. Don't give all the answers. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Gabe, any advice for the deconstructionists? <laughs> for the deconstructionists? Well, I think you're yeah, on Yeah, if somebody's deconstruction, of... uh, what should they do? I think what we see in Scripture, what we see in other uh, men and women of faith over the centuries has been... Um, Advice that uh, that I learned just recently working uh, with Pastor Gary Feldman uh, is something his dad would always tell him: stick in there, just keep at it, uh, don't give up, um, keep searching because you will find God, keep listening because you will hear God, keep wanting more of the things of God and you will have them. It's it it is a compound interest type of relationship. And it's really just like any other relationship. It's so simple. You want to deconstruct theology and relationship with God, it's like as simple as your relationship with any other human or animal or plant or food on your plate. It doesn't, it doesn't enrich your life unless you put uh, it in your mouth. Unless you unless you savor it, unless you understand it, right? I mean, I, I'm I'm thinking about dinner. We're getting close to to third dinner here, right? It's midnight, so this is my third <laughs> dinner coming up, and I'm already thinking about what Live we're going to eat. Taco Bell, yo quiero <laughs> Taco Bell. <laughs> but you I think as me, far as <laughs> you make me think of a, a a pastor that's in our area. His name is Shane Bishop, and he says, "Stay at the table." Um, you can't find healing in relationship if you get up and leave the table, right, in, in your anger. And so the only way, and, and by the way, that's really helpful for personal relationships too. The only way you're going to find healing through any relationship, even that with God, is if you stay at the table, like you said, stick in it, right? Um, uh, keep pursuing it. I mean, after all, it's why the Gospels tell us to ask, seek, and knock, right? Because you will find it. Uh, you know, my two cents... Um, and maybe it's because I'm the eternal optimist, is um, assume the best as you deconstruct. Um, And I guess I mean that maybe more about God than the institution, though it applies to the institution too. Um, Like, assume God to be good and true, 
right? Uh, assume that he uh, that his promises are true, and you may not understand them, and you may not um, be- feel them or believe them. Kind of like Wesley is not feeling it at the moment, but if you can begin um, with the foundation that there is a God, I'm going to assume that there is a God who loves me, and and that He has tried to reach out to me right with the things of his word and with his son and i'm gonna pursue it as if he is good and right um where i think sometimes we enter into deconstruction with a bit of malice um i'm going to disprove that god is good and 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 that leads to much more easy demolition right um what if he's right you know i mean what if all this goodness of god and his promises and his salvation what if it's right that god is good um, I've been known to tell students before who are who are sort of nerds and geeks like, um, you know, the scientific method, if you're going to prove a hypothesis, you're trying to prove that the hypothesis is true. Um, you're not trying to disprove it. You're actually trying to say, I believe this to be the outcome. So my advice for the deconstructionist would say, enter your deconstruction as if you're going to rebuild it and as if it is true and as if God is good and as if he has sent a savior into the world. You just might need to tweak the nuts and bolts as you do that. Um, But I think it's much more dangerous if we get into deconstruction and say, none of it's true right? So I have Mm -hmm. to start over. And what? Figure out your personal salvation and the salvation and redemption of the whole world by your own insights and knowledge? That seems like too big of a task. You know, um, I'm sure the others would say this too as we kind of wrap up our deconstruction time today, you know, that if we can be of any help as you process Maybe the faith of your parents that you're making your own or uh, harms that you've had in the church. And if we can point you to conversations or resources um, or even share some of our own support and insight, please don't hesitate to reach out and connect to us. Um, We have, of course, a um, kind of piddly website for Midnight Theology, but we're all available on uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, too. So reach out to us there if we can be of any help. That's right. Well, Well, barely find me on Insta or Facebook. I guess if you find me, you can find Gabe. True that. <laughs> yeah. Send I'm, me a connect, DM and says, connected to this people is for Gabe. That, yes, this is, this is fine. <laughs> this this is message fine. is for Gabe. <laughs> <laughs> hey, thanks, guys, uh, for your time. Um, but I'm hoping we have a little fun before we go today. We what are we going to talk do. about? What's the fun part? Well, with Valentine's Day coming up, I thought we could do a little Valentine's Day trivia. How does Aww. that sound? Ooh. It sounds lovely. <laughs> I love uh, trivia. I like that. He's got good he's got uh-huh. jokes. <laughs> <laughs> so I've, I've got a, I got a little bit of a mixed bag here. Uh, it goes into church history, Greek mythology, and just general trivia about uh, Valentine's Day. So we should have a little bit of fun here. Um, so let's go ahead and, and kick it off with a question about Saint Valentine himself, mm. who was uh, executed on February fourteenth in the year two sixty nine by Emperor Claudius the second. Why? Does anyone know the story of St. Valentine? He was doing marriages? Or is that part of the myth of it? Yes. Illegal marriages. Yes. Yes. The emperor had forbidden young men to marry in an attempt to bolster his army. 
But St. Valentine continued to conduct marriages. So he was put to death on... The audacity. Yeah, yes. (laughs) So he was put to death on February 14th of the year 269. That's a long Um, time ago. Yes, which consequently was declared uh, the uh, Feast of St. Valentine uh, by Pope Galatius I in what year? 351... 496 or 782. I'm going to say 782. Just, they were probably just looking for something to do. That's not how feast days 500 work, years. A 500, 500 years go by. You know what? Let's make a feast about Did it. Did you pick that answer because it rhymed? What do you mean? 782, 782 there's nothing else to do. No, that's just, I'm, I'm just flowing with the, with the stuff, <laughs> good stuff today. All right, we're going 782. All right, so it was actually 496. That was, uh, that was when, yeah, yeah, it was, it was yeah, fairly, fairly quick within uh, less than 250 years, I guess. Okay, uh, so uh, Pope Glacius declared uh, the Feast of St. Valentine in hopes of distancing the day's ties to a Roman festival that was much less uh, sanctified, mm-hmm. I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. Uh, which Roman festival? Was it the festival of Floralia, uh, a festival in honor of Flora, the goddess of vegetation and fertility, that consisted of theatrical performances and games, some of which involved prostitutes dancing naked and fighting in mock gladiator combat? So think like WWE with prostitutes. Or was it uh, Lupercalia, a festival in honor of Lupercus, the god of shepherds, where young men would run through the city wearing nothing but goat skins and whip young maidens in hopes of increasing their fertility? That one. That one. Yes. It is that one. (laughs) Yep. So that that is. I needed it to be that one. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> we're going streaking okay so and that's why skin. uh yeah yeah uh so that's why pope glacius declared february 14th that the feast of saint valentine was to try to create some distance between that and the the uh, roman festival of make Lupercalia. all make all the people put clothes on for church is what yes make it, is what they did going for the big w here the big win <laughs> all right so, speaking of Greek mythology, Cupid is said to be the son of which Greek goddess? Vesta, Minerva, Venus, or Aphrodite? Aphrodite. Aphrodite. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry, other goddess Venus. of fertility. Venus. Venus. It's oh. Venus. See, that was my first instinct, and then I let you guys change my mind. You just didn't know it. <laughs> yeah, just blame us. Uh, okay. Yeah. Um, so now, now on to um, Valentine's Day itself. Which infamous British monarch declared Valentine's Day an official holiday? Uh, was it William the Conqueror, King Henry VIII, Queen Victoria, or King James VI? Oh, that's a. Tough I'm gonna keep one. my mouth shut I'm, so Sarah can't say I changed her mind. Yeah, I'm an, <laughs> I have no idea. Uh, not even a little bit, and I'm just go. gonna say Henry because of all of the wives and his womanizing. 
And you uh, would be correct. He Yay! declared it. Yes, he declared it a holiday stolen. in 1537, which is quite ironic, as Sarah mentioned, considering uh, the fact that he was quite the heartbreaker with his six consecutive marriages, two of which were terminated by means of execution. Terminated. And of course, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the Terminator. You're and, terminated. Uh, <laughs> quite literally. Uh, and, and of course, that's not to mention the several mistresses he had on the side uh, he had quite the love life um so yes he he was the one who declared it an official holiday uh now even more interestingly uh here's a true or false for you the feast of saint valentine has been removed from the official roman calendar of saints true or false true true yeah that is correct after the second vatican council in 1969 pope paul VI decided to remove saint valentine's day from the calendar of catholic feast days Mostly because very little about the actual St. Valentine could be verified. Mm. He, he didn't want any association with those men whipping women with their animal skins. Who, they who ran knows? naked through the streets. Yeah. yeah. And uh, rumor has it there there was more than one St. Valentine. And that's part of the discrepancy. Or more than, more than one Valentine who was like marrying people that the em- emperor killed. And um, oh. some discrepancy about um, who the real Saint Valentine was. So you can't blame the Pope for like distancing yeah. himself from historical inaccuracy. You know. There you go. Yep. Yep. All right. Uh, so to close us out, I've got two general questions about Valentine's Day. Statistical questions. Uh, the first is worldwide. How many roses are given for Valentine's Day each year? It's got to be a metric crap ton. Billions. (laughs) Yeah. Any guesses? A number. The number of roses or the number of dollars spent on? Number of roses given each day worldwide. Each day or just on Valentine's Day? Sorry, uh, Valentine's Day worldwide. What's what's 12 times 6 billion? I'm going to say we're up. North of north of two hundred million, and Larry's guess would actually be a little high. I was surprised to learn it's only around fifty million. Well, no yeah, kidding. I wonder if it's like a very yeah. American thing to like. Could be give a dozen roses, you know. I didn't really dig into that stat, so I'm yeah. not sure. Yeah, I don't know what's behind it, but that was the that was the number that appeared multiple places. You know, I'm sure uh, okay. issues of global poverty don't have anything to do with it either, but uh, exactly. So there's <laughs> there's that to consider. Um, the fact that we're one of few first world countries uh, in the world. Uh, okay, then uh, the the final hey, I'm gonna question. Que- I'm going to question your source. I just googled it. Okay, it is, go ahead, Larry. It is, it is estimated that more than 250 million roses are produced for Valentine's Day. Produced. So if they're producing 250 million, but only selling 50 million, we've 50. got a big discrepancy. Oh, Larry's vindicated. I here. don't know. Have you ever been to like Kroger the day after Valentine's Day or Sam's Club? <laughs> That's they're true. They're throwing out as many as they're getting in. But that 200 million. I mean, I, a lot of roses. Who knows? Anyway, the internet will tell us anything. That's true. <laughs> Confirmation bias is a wonderful thing. All right. Uh, so, final question. And, uh, gentlemen, this could get us in trouble. Uh, the average man Uh-oh. spends how much on their Valentine's Day gift? Not enough. Ooh. Not enough. <laughs> final answer, not know. enough. <laughs> Never enough. <laughs> Never, Never enough. enough. The average American Never man. Go, Larry. Never. 
I'm gonna say the average American man spends seventy five dollars. Uh, I'm say a hundred. Just cancel Gabe out. I say lower. <laughs> the, girl, the girl in the room's like, I, I've Are been you one dollar from experience. One dollar bob. You're gonna get <laughs> the dollar bob. You're gonna get the dollar twenty five card from Dollar General. Ooh, you're gonna get. Ooh buddy, it's getting hot. Uh, okay. Uh, <laughs> The uh, the average man spends one hundred thirty dollars. So Gabe, yeah, you got yeah. work to do. Nicely surprised. <laughs> yeah, I got a double. No, effort. no, no. That was no. Double that was effort. not out you, of personal experience. Just the way you said lower. You can, you're going to get a candy pop ring. What you're going to get? Candy it's what it's watching the men run into Kroger right to get like <laughs> the Russell sure. Stover's things in a car in a carnation right. Like, Eight a.m. on Valentine's Day. Yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> <sighs> Oh boy. Well, um, that's all I got. Although I should say, you know, any gesture of love is so appreciated. She should say that. No matter how much money you spend. Speaking be- on behalf of all the women in the world. It's it's so true. This is going to be the first time we get hate mail. <laughs> <laughs> For so many reasons. We yeah, we treaded on some treacherous waters today, and we hope maybe that you have some patience and grace with us as we process this phenomenon of deconstruction. I am sure we didn't get it all right today as we theorized and um, pontificated as friends who hope the best for the church, right, and people who are in pursuit of it. So if we said anything today that stepped on your toes, just uh, extend some grace to us as we deconstruct deconstruction and hopefully put all the pieces back together. Or send us an email. I'll let Adam read it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's about all the time we have for today. Um, So I hope y'all will join us uh, next month as we welcome Dr. Brian Russell from Asbury Seminary, who recently authored a wonderful book on centering prayer. And we'll be talking to him about that. And we're looking forward to having him on. So hope you will join us next month. And uh, thank you for joining us uh, this month on Midnight Theology. And uh, if you are up doing some late night online shopping for Valentine's Day, remember, don't be a cheapskate. Your significant other might drop you like the Pope dropped the Feast of St. Valentine. See you next time. Uh, a shout out from me to Nora and Amelia. Okay. My my two my two little nieces listen to the podcast with their dad. Yeah. Oh. So, no. Hi Nora That's and Amelia. Best. Hi guys. Yay.